And our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he hears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. As always, good to be here with you. Uh, good to be here and worship the Lord together. Let me open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into it. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for the kindness and the mercy that you have shown to us. God, thank you for coming to get us uh, when we could not find our own way, Lord. We are lost, distant, dark. God, thank you for coming to retrieve us and bring us into your family as your children. Lord, we thank you. God, we love you. Uh, We ask that you would fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Would you be at work in us to draw us closer to you? Uh, May we know you more, Lord. And God, we pray for the day when the knowledge of you covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. God, we cannot wait to see you and be with you and enjoy you in all your glory. Father, we love you. Uh, Again, please be with us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in our second week of our series, uh, Portraits of the Savior. Last week, we went through Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is a vision of God seated on his throne, Uh, Here we have a sovereign God uh, whose judgments are inscrutable, right? He commands and it's done. This is the sovereign king that is seated on the throne and he is holy, holy, holy. In other words, there is no one like him. And what we saw, how this connects to Jesus, is we saw that Jesus is none other than this holy, holy God. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel in a very real sense. Um, Jesus didn't just come as a teacher. He didn't just come to teach us about God. He didn't come to be an example for us. 
He came to be God with us. So in terms of shaping our expectations for our Savior, our expectations for Advent, the first thing we should expect from Jesus is that where he is present, God is present. Where Jesus is present, God is there. So you commune with Jesus. You come to Jesus. You are coming to the Lord, and he is the only one that, you can, re- that can reconcile you to himself and his Father. Uh, today, second portrait that we're taking a look at is uh, essentially Jesus as our king. Right, we're getting now into the part of Isaiah that talks about Jesus' offices or his roles, the roles that he fulfills as Messiah. And the first thing that he does as our Messiah is he rules over us as our king. He rules over everything. Um, Isaiah 11 is about a figure, a man who is filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord for a kingly purpose. He's empowered to establish God's kingdom on earth. Now, there is a famous sermon clip uh, by a man, he's deceased now, an old Baptist preacher named S.M. Lockridge. Uh, Full name is Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Like, talk about a slam dunk on the whole Christian name thing. Um, But he's got this great sermon, great sermon clip. you guys should just look it up if you haven't seen it already. If you just go to YouTube, uh, type in Sermon Jam Lockridge or Sermon Jam SM Lockridge, you should see it. But I just want to quote a section of this to you. He states, My king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's morally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. He is the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. What Lockridge does so well here is describe how Jesus is a king like no one else. He is the unique king. He is the holy, holy, holy king. And he tells us in his own words why this is. Why Jesus is the king that can be trusted no matter what. Now, kingship is not always a popular topic. Because you know what? When we talk about Jesus being king, it automatically implies the fact that we are not. We have to submit to that truth. So it's not always a popular topic. But what I want us to understand this morning is that without submission, without submitting to this king, there is no such thing as real security. There's no such thing as real safety. Submission and security, these are the two ideas that lie behind this question about who is king. So to put it another way, who here, just raise your hand, raise your hand if you like giving up control. No. Why? Why? Uh, Have you ever tried to talk to a toddler about giving up control? Like there's something they want, remote or whatever it is, but 
You want it? No, it's good luck. Um, so it starts at a young age. We don't like this whole idea, this whole thought of giving up control. Now, what are some things that we don't like giving up control of? And I am going full John Ransom here, so I'm, I want you to hit me with your feedback. Okay, so what are some things that we don't like to give up control of? Time. Yes, absolutely, right? I, I feel very, uh, I feel a certain way about my time. Uh, what else? Money, right? We want to spend our money how we want to on the things that we like, right? What else? You know, one, one thing that hit me was just my, my kids and their relationships, right? I, like, I'm the guy that, like, peeks around the corner to see if my kids are playing well and making friends, right? I know, I have problems, but... Um, it comes down to this fact that we don't like giving up control. Now, on the flip side, when we're talking about security, who wouldn't like a world that is characterized by perfect peace, where everything is safe? You don't have to worry about your wife or your children going out at night. There's just no, like, that is an entirely different thing. Like, it's, it's hard to even imagine. Right? Where a world where we don't have to worry about the safety of our loved ones, a world where we don't even have to worry about death. Like, who would not love that? Now, church, I need to tell you that there is only one person who can save from death. He is the king of kings. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, and his name is Jesus. And his kingdom, this perfect kingdom beyond all imagination, is for those who submit to him, who recognize their need for him. Because we don't get this kingdom without submitting to the king. Right, that is essentially the main theme, main idea this morning. Jesus is the righteous king who will establish perfect security for all who submit to him. Again, Jesus is the righteous king who will establish perfect security for any who would submit to him. Three points that arise from the text. Uh, one, his identity. Two, his rule. And three, his kingdom. So this morning we're answering questions, these questions. What's his identity? What is his rule like? And what is his kingdom like? So continuing with point number one here. Who is this king? Well, this should be really quick, really quick point because we already know it's that classic Sunday school answer. The king is Jesus. Yep. But there are two key things that this text focuses our attention on. It really hones in on. And those two things um, are his lineage, his, where he descends, how he descends, and then his anointing, the fact that the spirit has rested upon him. So if you've been around Bible study for like any amount of time or been in the church, you know that Jesus is a king in the line of David, right? Maybe we don't exactly understand why that's important at first, but Isaiah is going to show us why that's important. And he goes to a great length to highlight this fact. Because in verse 1, Isaiah 11 verse 1, he states, There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now in the next verse, in verse 2, this shoot is identified as a man, as a person. And what Isaiah here is doing right off the bat is he's highlighting David's family tree because Jesse was the father of King David. So he's highlighting family tree right here. Now at the end of this passage, verse 10, we see some similar language. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious, right? So that similar theme of Jesse's family tree, David's family tree. He's opening the passage with this idea, and he's closing. So we got this nice little bracket right here. Now, here's where it gets interesting, or at least this is where I think it gets interesting. Romans chapter 15. Here, Paul quotes, or it's actually, not, it's not a quote. He's paraphrasing. He's paraphrasing from what he sees right here in Isaiah chapter 11. So again, this is Paul's words. He says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul is essentially interpreting this passage for us. He's identifying the root of Jesse explicitly as Jesus Christ. And then he's telling us what it means for him to stand as a signal for the nations. It means that they're going to submit to him. He's going to rule over them. But here's why this is so important. It's because the arrival of the Davidic king, the Davidic king that's described right here, the arrival of this king means salvation for the whole world, even the Gentiles. Because you see, in Isaiah's day and in Paul's day, the Gentiles were the people that were considered to be far from God, had nothing to do with him. They were godless pagans. It sounds like a couple people that I know, but um, there, there was... They had nothing to do with the Lord of Israel. But his point is that no matter how far, no matter how distant, no matter how dark, God has brought salvation near in Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt beyond the reach of God? Do you feel like there are parts of your heart or parts of your life that are beyond his reach this morning? You know, the line, the stuff about the line of David might seem like a random historical detail, but it means that God has made salvation available to all, no matter how far away you might think you are. So here in this chapter, so we got this Davidic king, very clear, and the beginning of this passage, beginning of chapter 11, spends a good bit of time explaining that this king has the spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Okay, that's very important. We talked about that a little bit last time. And we see how uh, Jesus is identified as this spirit-filled king. Because remember, at Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends upon him and rests upon him, right? Mirroring that language right here in the book of Isaiah. So he's, Jesus is identified as this particular king, through that event, but it gives us a little bit more information than that. It's telling us, Isaiah is tell, uh, telling us 
that Jesus was empowered as a man. He was empowered as the Messiah, a man with our human nature. You see, Jesus lived his perfect sinless life, did all his miraculous things as a man entirely dependent and filled with the Spirit of God. Now, this is important, and I'm going to explain why, but we're going to have to step into a little deeper theological waters here. I'm very confident, super confident in you all. And I think the best way to approach this question of, you know, why is it so important that Jesus had to be a man? It's to frame it this way. Why didn't God send an angel to die in our place? Or why didn't God just come down as God? Because he'd done that in the Old Testament. He'd showed up to the people of Israel. He showed his glory to them. So why didn't he just come down the way that he was? Or why didn't he send one of his perfect messengers to go do it? Right? Why did Jesus need to become a man? Well, the answer is that we, in our iniquity and our sin, we didn't need God to become perfect for us. And we didn't need an angel to become perfect for us. We needed a man with our nature to become perfect for us. So that that way, he could stand in our place and our sins could really be put away in his sacrifice. And so that his perfect, righteous, spirit-filled, spirit-dependent life could really count for us. That's the whole point. Jesus had to become a man, and Isaiah goes to such lengths to foreshadow this for us because he wants to show us that his life and his death counted for us. Jesus' identity as Davidic king, as spirit-anointed king, means that salvation is not a maybe There's not a question mark behind it, but it has been made a certain fact. Jesus came to redeem human beings, as sinful as we are, as distant as we may be. His work counted for sinners like me and you. And here's why this is so important for us to understand. It's because Jesus didn't die for like a better version of you. He didn't, he's not, his work doesn't count for you when you get your life together. No, he died and came for you with all of your problems, with all of your struggles and doubts and insecurities. And what do you need to do? Exactly, nothing. Open hands, receive, trust that his work counted, and by doing so, submit to his lordship. Because salvation comes through his reign, not apart from it. And here we are getting into our second point. How does this king rule? Well, his rule is characterized by righteousness, right? Verse 4, with righteousness, he will judge the poor and the meek. Now, in contrast to this, he will kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. Now, interesting for a number of reasons. First, because the poor 
Like you'd think that they would be contrasted with the rich, right? But they're not contrasted with the rich. They're contrasted with the wicked. So poorness and meekness is not automatically a sign of like material wealth or something like that. And if you look throughout the book of Isaiah, you'll see this in Hebrew, this word for poor, or it's also translated afflicted. So if you look for the poor and afflicted in the book of Isaiah, you'll see it pop up in a couple different contexts. Uh, But there's a common thread throughout all the usage of this word through Isaiah. And that is that these people, these poor and afflicted, are people who recognize their need for God. They have a repentant heart posture. They are people that are needy. They know that they need God's help. They need his sustenance. They need his grace. They are needy people. Just like us, really, we are needy. So in that day, there were the needy among God's people in Isaiah's day, and they were being exploited by people within their own covenant community. So the own community, their own community in the nation of Israel, they were being exploited by their leaders, people of status, people that had wealth and influence, people that should have been taking care of them. So I want to make this clear, like being rich does not there's not an equal sign between rich and wicked. Doesn't necessarily mean being wicked. But being wicked in this context means leveraging your influence, leveraging your status or, or whatever power you have for evil. Leveraging your influence to take advantage of others. And unfortunately, we see that today all over the place, even in the church. Very sad. Powerful figures today using their leverage so that they can get exactly what they want. And they're not thinking about anyone else. But that is not the Davidic king. You think about Jesus, what he did with all of his power, with all of his influence, his leverage, he used it to give, to serve us. Throughout the book of Isaiah, we often see this contrast between the needy and the wicked. Again, not the rich or, or not, not the righteous and the wicked. It's the needy and the wicked. And we see the same kind of dynamic during the life of Jesus, right? It's needy contrasted with wicked. And if you look at Jesus' life, you'll see that oftentimes he's at conflict with religious leaders. And that's because the leaders of his day were spiritually oppressive, They took advantage of others. They used their influence to take and take and take. You look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. It says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. They didn't recognize their need. Instead, they oppressed and judged and misled the people who actually would have recognized their need for Jesus. So no wonder Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 7, he says, do not judge by appearances. Okay, that's John chapter 7 after there's this discussion about healing on the Sabbath. 
Do not judge by appearances. And he's alluding to the words of Isaiah chapter 11. When Isaiah says there's a coming king who won't judge by what he sees or by what he hears. Jesus is identifying himself as this righteous king. And that's kind of weird. Right? Because we, like we would expect a righteous judge to do exactly that. Judge by what he can see and what he can hear. Like the best kind of judge is the one who's most objective about the evidence. But you see, Jesus doesn't, based on appear- just, he doesn't judge based on appearances. He judges based off of one simple theological point. Do you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior? He judges according to those who recognize their need for him. Jesus accepts the one who is needy. You see, both the Pharisee and the tax collector were sinners. But one recognized his need and one walked away accepted by God. Look, if Jesus gave everyone exactly what they deserved, then all we would get would be death and hell. The wages of sin is death. That is exactly what we have earned for ourselves. But here's the thing. Jesus accepts the one who recognizes his need for God, for God to do something for him that he could never do for himself. The one who says to God, please help me. I'm desperate. It's hard to believe. Help me do it, God. I can't. That's the one that he accepts. So what keeps us from being that kind of person? It's pride, right? Our insistence to be the lords of our own lives. The mentality, the attitude that I'm going to do what I want with who I want whenever I want. We like that false sense of control. But you know what? What the reality is, is that no matter how in control you think you are, no matter how many resources you have, how much leverage, power you have comparatively to other people, you are ultimately very limited. Only Jesus has absolute dominion. Only he has boundless authority, which is exactly what we see in the last half of verse 4. And I really like this. I like the imagery, the picture that this paints. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. So here's the image, right? Jesus judges. He issues his judgment with the rod of his mouth. Now, when we see that phrase, the rod of his mouth, we should be thinking of a king's scepter. It's a symbol of his authority, right? The king lifts the scepter and the people kneel. He points and people go. So Jesus judges with the rod of his mouth, with the absolute authority of his speech, of his word. Jesus' rule is characterized by righteousness and it's characterized by authority. 
an authority so absolute that he just speaks and it's done. You see, Jesus rules over both the needy and the wicked. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. Right? The Pharisees th thought that they were very good. It doesn't matter how much power you have, how much influence you have, because there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's the needy, and then there's the wicked. So which one are you? Because there will be, I can promise you, there will be a day where every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow at the name of Jesus. So we can bow now and enjoy the security of his rule, or we can bow later and suffer his righteous vengeance. Jesus has absolute authority, yet he uses this authority. This is what's so awesome about our king. He uses his authority for our good so that we can flourish. This kind of absolute power, you think about it, and it's intimidating, it's frightening, but Jesus is good. It's exactly what the Chronicles of Narnia tells us, right? When Aslan's, or Aslan right, he's compared to Jesus, and then Mr. Beaver tells one of the little children that Aslan is not a safe lion, but he is good. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And that is exactly what characterizes his kingdom. So that's our final point this morning. Jesus, as the Davidic righteous king, uses his supreme authority to bring perfect peace to those who follow him, to those who live gladly under his rule. Again, that's the wonderful thing about submission to this king, is that he provides a place, a kingdom of perfect peace for us. You take a, a look at the last half of this chapter, right? And all the imagery about the lamb and the wolf together, living together, the child and the serpent. Okay, you take a look at this image and, and there's no need to worry. It's perfect security. There's no need to be greedy, no need to take advantage of others. There's no need to worry about people taking advantage of you. Right? It's freedom. It's more freedom than we could ever imagine. You see, God wants your obedience. Right? He wants you to obey. Number one, because that's right. It's the right thing. And number two, it's because he wants you to flourish. His authority is not about controlling you. It is about setting you free. You just think back to the Garden of Eden or you have Adam and Eve, and they're given one prohibition, right? Do not eat of the fruit, for in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Okay, he gave, God gave them that prohibition, not because he didn't want them to live, but precisely because he wanted them to live. He wanted them to flourish in this perfect place, knowing that they could trust him. The prohibition wasn't about taking something from them. Like, how often do we think, oh, God is just trying to take something from me. He's just trying to control me. Right? God is not trying to take away something from you. He's trying to give to you. 
So there's one prohibition. And then we have three interesting commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Excuse me? Did you say be fruitful and multiply? Uh, Did you say enjoy God's great good earth and enjoy its resources, like flourish in this place, right? These commands don't really sound like prohibitions at all, right? These commands have nothing to do with taking from you. God's commands about, are about life so that you can flourish and have life. Literally, in a literal sense, these commands were about spreading life across the earth. And Jesus uses all of his authority so that you can have life in the fullest. But we can't remove Christ and still receive his kingdom. Because Jesus is Lord. That is who he is. We can't take away the king and still get the kingdom. We can't have his blessings without him. And if you know him, you know that he is the ultimate blessing. His own person is the ultimate blessing that he has to offer. So how much is our false sense of security or our false sense of control, how much is that worth? How much is our pride worth? How much is it worth to us to think that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want? You know, at the end of the day, whether we like to admit it or not, we are needy people. And we need someone to provide this perfect place, this perfect security for us. We're not strong enough. We're not even close. No matter how much money or power or influence we may gather, we still live in a world that is in many ways defined by pain and sorrow and violence. Not peace. You see, we need a king with absolute authority, the one who says, go, and they depart. He says, he says to the darkness, be gone, and it's gone. Right? We need that kind of king with absolute authority because his strength is the only way we get here. His strength is the only way that we receive this as our inheritance. Now, has anyone here ever felt helpless at some point in their life? Yeah, yeah, me too. I was really confronted with my human finitude, my human inability when my first daughter was born. Her name's Nellie. And uh, just a couple hours after she was born, she had to be taken to the NICU. Uh, She had a collapsed lung. And um, there was a period of time where we just saw her condition worsen and worsen. Um, You know, the doctors and nurses tried a couple of interventions after they had taken her away, but she just continued to to worsen. Uh, She was, you know, her one lung was breathing like 200 breaths a minute, so like just overworking this one tiny little lung. And they decided to uh, take a syringe to remove a pocket of air so that her lung could reinflate. And I'm there to watch this procedure. I'm, I'm, it's just me. My wife, she was just operated on so she couldn't get out of her, her hospital room. 
But I witnessed this procedure, start walking back uh, to my hospital room. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of classic hospital hallway, right? Very sterile looking, fluorescent lighting overhead. The walls were like kind of a pale yellow. Um, And keep in mind, right, I, like all we've experienced in the NICU so far is her condition continuing to worsen. So I'm scared, right? I'm really shaken up by this. And I'm walking back and I just remember trying to like strike a deal with God. Like I'm talking to him. Like, God, please, can, can I give you something for my daughter's health? Like, would you take my legs? Would you ruin my health? Just take something so that she can recover. I'm just like, completely absurd, right? It's, it's ridiculous, crazy stuff that I'm saying. Because I was just, I had nothing. There was nothing I could do. I was just grasping at air. And, and like, I'm, I'm supposed to be the dad, right? I'm supposed to be the guy that makes things better. But I have nothing. In that moment, and really throughout my whole life, whether I realized it or not, I needed someone who had absolute strength. Someone who could say the word and it is done. Someone who has even conquered the grave. I needed, that, I needed that kind of person. I needed that kind of king to place my hope in. Nellie re- started recovering soon after that night. And you know what? There's, there's way worse reasons to go to the NICU. But I, I say this because I know that there's no pain quite like kid pain. And there's no helplessness, quite like watching the ones you love suffer. So we could have all the good intentions in the world. We can have all the desire in the world. We could even have all of the influence and money in the world. But at the end of the day, what can we do to really save someone's life? What can we do to keep people safe? We are limited. Who can truly keep you safe? Who can truly keep your loved ones safe? Who can protect them from death? There's only one. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. He is the righteous king. He is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. His name is Jesus, and he is my king. You know, I was going to close by quoting again from uh, S.M. Lockridge. But instead, I think I'm going to try to take a page from his book, follow his lead, and tell you in my own words who my king is. My king is a sovereign king. He upholds the universe with the word of his power, yet he comforts the afflicted and sustains the weak. He is full of mercy. His love is incredible. His character is immutable. His presence is magnificent. His grace is unstoppable. 
His counsel unquestionable, his decrees perfect. He's immeasurable, incomprehensible, invincible. His is the most glorious name ever to be spoken in the languages of men and angels. Death couldn't defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. He's all powerful, all satisfying. He is absolutely wonderful. I wish I could describe him to you better. His name is Jesus. That is my king. So who's your king? Who will you submit to? Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we praise you and we thank you. God, we love you for being so kind and gracious to us to give us a king who is so wonderful, God. Lord, what could we ever do to deserve something like this? There's nothing. God, thank you for your boundless grace, for your incredible kindness towards us. Lord, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that we would all trust in you, that we would see you as you are, as the all-satisfying, righteous king that you are. Would you please bless my brothers and sisters here? Would you fill us with your spirit, God? Would you draw us close to you? And God, may our confidence be placed in you. Because a confidence that is placed in you cannot be shaken. For you are never shaken. You are always faithful. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.